Tomorrow Into Today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again today, we are joined by our moderator, Kirsten, helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Timothy Beach, Chief Data Officer for the Program Executive Office Integrated Warfare Systems. So thank you for joining us today. Kirsten, the floor is yours. Hello and welcome back to another episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. Timothy, I am going to have you kind of start out by introducing yourself, what it is that you do, and also a little background on kind of how you got to this point. I love hearing people's career trajectories and how they got to where they are today. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, it was it was a great event, and that was a pleasure to meet you at GuyTech yesterday. Uh, I mean, uh, where to start? So I was a Navy brat growing up. My dad was in the Navy. It was never something I considered going into. And I got into high school. I had good enough grades. I, got, I, was, I was a reasonable athlete. And, and I got the opportunity to go to participate in the summer seminar at the Naval Academy. And moving around a lot as a kid, got used to detaching right from, from people. Right, Every few years, I would move. And so just in a few weeks, I made friends that I felt like I, I was as close to as any I'd made in my childhood. And so that appealed to me. And uh, years later, I ended up going to the Naval Academy. And while there, I uh, got the opportunity to participate in what's called the option. It used to be that if an officer wanted to transfer out of being a ship driver or a pilot and go do something more specific, they call restricted line they would have to go to a lateral transfer board, but they started coming out with the option of, oh, we want to pre-screen the skill sets or the academic background that we want in these lateral transfer restricted positions and give them the opportunity to do it ahead of time. So I went into the interview and I passed. And four years later, after commissioning and uh, deploying on two different ships, I became an engineering duty officer got my engineering master's degree, and uh, the rest is history. 16 years later, 10 of those have been uh, directly doing the engineering duty officer job, which is essentially procuring, maintaining, sustaining combat system weapons for the Navy. Um, And I can go into more detail on that as you want. But uh, largely, traditionally, my background, my interest is systems engineering, which is sort of taking your mechanical parts, your computers, and your electronics and making them all work together like you would visualize in a robot or, you know, combine those into different things like communications or, you know, smaller microelectronics and things like that. So my background has lent me a high level of interest in those kinds of systems. And it's both the human interaction with those systems and then how those systems are actually designed and built. So AI is, is someplace I just sort of was naturally inclined to to move towards. So, wow. uh, 
Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, what would you say is sort of your current passion around that you're working on, whether it be a project or technology or anything that you feel very interested in at the moment? At the moment. Okay. So I'm, I'm curiosity has always been something that drives me, which is why I think system appeals to me. I always, always want to go and understand topics, deep dive topics, try to distill out the important things, then figure out how that relates to the bigger world. I think everything is interconnected. And so something that has really, really pulled me in lately is trying to really, really understand the humanity side of AI. What does that mean? What, you know, the purpose of AI, right? So going a little bit into the history, understanding how the terminology came, uh, how has it academically changed, how has it changed in literature? And so really kind of talking to the experts who have used AI to enhance our lives in ways that are designed to enhance and enrich human experience and others that have turned it into, and I, I quoted a phrase which may or may not be popular, in e-mercenary, right? Because if, if you're just a, an AI for hire, with no grounding in supporting humanities, then then you're just you're just you know the equivalent of a gun for hire. So I think right now that has been taking up a lot of my black hole research curiosity time, if you will. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, what measures do you see have been taken in order to help encourage innovation with AI in the particular area of government that you work in? You know. I think that leadership is very supportive of artificial intelligence. I think there's a, a bit of an education around it that really, really needs to push. And I think that the CDAO, the Chief Data Analytics Office with Bonnie Evangelista and team doing, doing their AI literacy campaign is very important. There, there's, a, there's a culture, not only in the government, but just in the world that grew up where applications became kind of that immutable center of people's experience. And they think that that application is, is, that is the most important thing. So graphical user interface came in, it made so that personal computers became accessible to everyone. And through that, people's experience was the most important thing relationally to a human, the way they experience it was through that application, that GUI and the government right? That we were ahead of the curve on most of that. So we started even earlier than most. And most of our data that's, it's locked up inside those applications. And if we want multiple applications to use the same information, we have to copy and paste it over and over and over. And then, then you have to do the work to get the applications in the background with your, with your kind of, you know, tech stacks that aren't necessarily updated in the government to work efficiently together which is the integration problem and it's expensive and it takes a long time and you do it after you build the updated application, which you've copied and pasted your information over and over and over, which has a bunch of other challenges to it. So where, where some of the misunderstanding comes in is, hey, I'll sprinkle some AI fairy dust, essentially make it so I can continue doing business as usual, and then it'll just magically fix everything for me. But the reality is if you move your information or your data out of any one of those applications, the application becomes worth less, but the data is still extremely vital and important. And so I think to me, AI is about, hey, increase literacy and help people understand that what you really need to do is 
understand and and i and and really break out that data layer so that you have access to the actual data that you need and that all of the applications can commonly pull understood data up and contextualize them for use uh, from there and i think ai helps in the in-between to monitor how different applications with humans and machines actually interface with the data make those relational jumps and then help do things when you get to like a chat gpt where you change what is a graphical interface where humans are still typing and very much getting you know a one zero response to something that helps you contextualize what's in the data and help you make better decisions about both designing and and making decisions based on the information that you can you can pull so not sure if that's where you're going, but uh, in, in my mind, it's kind of just breaking it down to the different pieces that are actually important and not getting locked up in your how systems and how products are built today silos. Yeah, so. I love that you brought up ChatGPT too, because that was obviously a hot button people were talking about. I feel like it came up on most panels throughout GuideTech. Right. Yeah. For good reason, right? It's exciting. Even, even, and I think I mentioned this yesterday, but even Bill Gates wrote wrote something on it that said he's seen two user oriented, which, the small aside, I think it's really ironic that the only two industries that refer to the people that consume their products as users are electronics, software, and drugs. Just, just how you know, it's it's really interesting, but. Uh, Bill Gates called out from a user perspective, right? The first game-changing, you know, world-changing thing he saw was this graphical user interface. And the second was this language interface with large language models. And so it's exciting because it essentially replaces, we think, in terms of, oh, I can, you know, you've got, you've got video chat, you've got voice activation and recognition, but putting something behind there that has the ability to not only look narrowly at a small portion of like, hey, Siri looks at your computer and what's on it. Uh, but if Siri is built on something that now has the ability to look at the indexed internet that Google and some of these other sources from the large language models have, it really, really makes it so that the hive mind, you can have that Siri take on different personas and you can also have it improve what you're doing. And so just as you have the side that could improve it, you also have the side that could be malicious. So biases and other things are very important to consider. So large language modeling is, is for very good reason a hot topic. But like anything in the government, if you if you if you want it bad, you will get it bad. So we have to be very conscious about how we approach bringing that into our infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, speaking of the event that we had the other day, my next question was going to be around how do you see government working with the private sector and academic institutions to help develop and implement these AI solutions? What, what is your, your take on that? Um, so, you know, it's very interesting that you bring that up right around this time. So the Office of Strategic Capital just emerged at the OSD level. And one of the premises for that has been working for a few years was the idea of the valleys of death. How do you get an idea into a lab? How do you get a lab idea prototyped and value confirmed? And then how do you take that prototype and then transition it into a production mechanism? 
And I think that the government is realizing that a lot of the things that we did back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, where we became investors in technologies where just industry didn't have enough value and drive to do, right? So that goes back to the Cray-1 computer that we invested in in the, in the Cold War era that became essentially our secret weapon that helped us with the Cold War. That was an investment the government made in a company that if it was private capital alone, they couldn't have made it. So there's the capital engagement to drive sectors and emerging technologies to aid in that transition and make the government a stakeholder on that. And then there is all of the labs that are everywhere. And I think we heard uh, we heard a, a really, really good talk at, at GuyTech yesterday from the chief information officer of the Department of Energy, who has hundreds of labs looking at very dynamic problem sets with an incredibly large amount of diverse users, right? Users that are Chinese nationals and users that are, you know, top secret government employees. And I think what that draws out is that we we don't have an interconnected ecosystem the way we used to, and we've stovepiped a lot of things. And so on that middle ground where we're trying to take ideas and really build them out with maturity in a lab, I think going back to you know, I think most people have heard of Bell Labs. Bell Labs came about in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and it was the best minds in the world. That's where the transistor was created and microelectronics essentially sprung out of Silicon Valley, developed out of a lot of the ideas and then the use of private funds to back it. Um, and then people getting away from the East Coast as they wanted to be away from what the traditional banking system and some of the other, other things were culturally. So I think culturally we have to recreate what Bell Labs did, which is Innovation is an outcome of culture and you influence that culture with skill sets and you influence that culture with the actual interactions between those skill sets. And so a lot of Bell Labs had this giant two mile hall and everybody had to walk through it to get to where they needed to go. And it would cause a lot of people to bump into each other. They also had a, a they had to sign a culture document that said that they will be forthcoming and discuss with colleagues and pull in experts. And so I think Anne, Anne talked about that in her BOE keynote yesterday, but it is extremely important to lower all of those barriers to experts talking to each other and really, really understand that what comes out of those, right? How do you balance opportunity with risk aversion, right? Because everybody talks about risk-based, but opportunity is the counterpart of risk. And if you're not putting any effort or any resources of people and minds and other things into it, you're actually just accepting issues, but you like to call them risks and continually talk about something that you're not actually actively working to solve. So it's, I think, I think those are the things that we have to work on is, is how do we amplify opportunity without amplifying the risk balance along with it. Right. And that kind of goes along with actually the next question I was going to ask too, which is it comes to the monitoring and the regulation and the development and the use of AI technology, you know, how do you see the government planning to do this? Like, do you see um, internal standards put into place or what is, where does your mind kind of go when I ask that question? I think it's a, there's two sides to it. So Gene Kim, and I quoted this yesterday too, Gene Kim wrote the Phoenix Project. He's been trying to uh, discover how to more effectively build 
build software systems um, in order to add value. And one of the things he notes in his books, he talks about the different types of, of companies that exist or, 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 or uh, entities. And he talks about the bureaucracy is people, right? The thing that bureaucracies protect is people and they protect them by building up these policies and these processes. So when you ask that question, that's where my head goes, which is we need to we need to really, really drive two things. One is drive the policies so that the behaviors of the individuals, which is the most invulnerable part in any system, is such that they're learning and they understand what this technology is and what it is not and how to to be aware of where the risk areas are. Uh, you can't just make something zero risk like this. And what happens when you put information into it? Does it where does it go? So just what's the right questions? Arm them with the questions and the behaviors that are beneficial. And on the other side, we have to drive, I believe we need to drive as the DOD to this idea of responsibility and, and uh, where AI is going. I think that what that leaves you with is driving, I don't know if you want to call them regulations, but almost agreements and trying to make sure people are humanities-based in the way that they're doing this, right? So one of those things in the neural network that we have, the ability to do that is easy for us, that's hard for computers is, you know, we, we on one hand, we recognize things that are out of place, right? Just because it feels wrong, right? So we have this instinct. And so that instinct is very hard to replicate. But what what is is something you can replicate is the ability to, instead of rushing to just massively ingest data to be the first person to put it out, if you understand the right points in which to put markers, you can essentially, everything in the last five minutes can be completely erased from existence, right? So that exists in a, right, from a, technical state and it's ephemeral, which means it hasn't been logged and recorded or, or it just exists separately in a place that is isolated. And before it gets committed back as part of the learning and part of the bigger corpus of information, uh, you can essentially just delete it. And I think that, that that to me is transparency or responsibility, is the ability to go back and mimic what humans can do um, inside that neural network that that's behind the AI. And it's not always a neural network, but the, but the information corpus and the, the large, the actual algorithm. So I guess, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's, it's an answer adjacent. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And actually like circling back to the first point you made around the awareness, would you say that that's the most important concept when it comes to um, what people should understand as it relates to AI literacy, or what do you think is the most important concept that people should understand when it comes to AI literacy? So, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to distill out what I think. <laughs> so people are, people are fickle, right? Um, it, this is, uh, so I'm in home buying mode right now we're looking at homes for for where I'm moving next and uh, it's a very personal and emotional thing and you can look at it and try to logically figure out what do you think a home's worth and this and that but when you when you get in the thick of it it becomes very emotional um, and it's very hard to pull yourself out of your attachment to something that you've been envisioning yourself in and your family and then you think about I've got kids and, and family coming over and you start thinking through all those logistics and it becomes a very 
personal and emotional thing. And that's that's what humans inside the government and any job have been doing. And there's always that natural pushback. And I think addressing the natural inclination for fear and turning that and not allowing to be a fear-based emotion, but it to be a curiosity and opportunity-based emotion with understanding that you're provided a safe space and what and defining what that is. So I think it's actually more important for the government to define a safe space so that people feel comfortable going and exploring it and seeing how it can enhance and and allow them to do more of the work they actually love doing instead of some of the more tedium copy paste and other things that actually that narrow AI allows the computer to do on your behalf and support you, not to make you irrelevant. So I still think from a humanity side, it's very important to, to focus on it being the right emotions that are driving people um, and optimizing for that. Do you feel like the common misconceptions around AI are coming from a place of fear or do you feel like Hollywood has instigated a lot of that. What are some of your thoughts around the misconceptions you commonly hear from people? Uh, man, some good questions. <laughs> so, it, and I think that's a very personal question. To generalize that is to take away from the diversity that makes your workforce valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, because everyone's experiences play in along with their education, along with their comfortable, like their psychological safety and how they fit into a team. And I think some of it is where the the human is coming from in their response. So I don't think it's a a one size fits all, but I think there needs to be different levels of, of addressing it, right? We we tend to think of an organization chain of command, especially inside the government, right? With the different tiers and, and you see the org charts that all go up towards the one person, uh, which, which essentially mimics sort of the way that things worked in, in the uh, industrial area as, as we were starting to ramp up and think of th- you know cogs in a machine. But really people work more like a network. And so if I had to say where I think the most important part of literacy is, is to really understand how a network of people works and what a network of people with a bridge to technology to enhance them, what does that mean in the context of the way that the organization will actually work as opposed to the way they're traditionally used to the structure today, which that's a very hard thing to do because people, people don't like abstraction. In most cases, most of them aren't data, you know, aren't, aren't math nerds that have lived in abstraction for large, large portions of their academic life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which so, is me. I live there. I love it there. <laughs> it's my happy place. <laughs> I know like you have children. I think you said they're like younger kids too. So my question. Yep, six and eight. Okay. Yep. So you might have a unique perspective on this next question then. How do you think schools and educators can better prepare students when it comes to understanding and working with AI? Because I ask this question a lot, and sometimes people just tend to go towards like college or post-grad courses and education. But I'm thinking even as young as probably your six and eight-year-old, maybe even younger. I don't know. What are what are your thoughts around education and AI for students? You know, this is a great question. And I know that it's attributed to Einstein, 
and, and I think a lot have tried to debunk it, but the quote stands accurate nonetheless, which is essentially paraphrasing, you show me a generation that, that, that uses technology they don't understand, and I'll show you a generation of idiots. And I think one of the keys for me is, is to, um, I think the more that technology has been advancing, the more we have to realize that, that fundamentals are, you need independent thinkers and you need people who fundamentally understand the technology and what it, what, how it works. And if you, if you get people to that basic understanding of how something works, uh, and you teach them to think independently, right. I use this example a lot. You know, a lot of times, even adults look outside and they're like, oh, the weather's terrible. I can't go outside. It's raining or it's windy or it's whatever. But they use the word can't, right, which is which is a hard stop, right, instead of I don't want to go outside, which is a choice. Yeah. So we tend to in, we, we tend to infer these rules, you know, unconsciously to children and others, and they just see it. They learn the little sponges for that behavior. We don't realize we're doing it. And so I think the education system, largely because it's a metrics-based system, and they metric something that was kind of established 60 years ago, I think the problem is, is that everyone learns at a different rate in different ways. They have different influences. And so using AI to responsively allow curious children to learn and based on their inspiration and what drives them, I think that's the power that it brings. And so... You can isolate that AI to really respond and understand the way that children ask questions and to allow them to explore the safe space, right? So you don't, you don't want them asking questions about, oh, where's Germany? And then it launched into the Holocaust, right? Like that is a thing you want children to learn at some point, but you can certainly, you can unlock curiosity and, and drive humans that way. So I'll, I'll use the example of, of, of coders. Some people say, oh, well, you know, I want to make computer games and, and parents are like, oh, yeah, yeah. But that's not like I need you to go figure out how to be like, I don't know, a dentist or a or an accountant or something practical. And you can do that, that on your spare time. Well, as it turns out, if you want to be a really good coder or really good at anything, like really good at it, you have to learn basic skill sets in math and economics and, and being social and, and human interactions and understanding the way that that users or, or people interface or machines interface or both. Um, and so when you encourage somebody down the route that is they're interested in, you get this sense of commitment. Uh, whereas when, when you go give them a regulation, you get compliance and that's an internal versus an external commitment piece. So I think that AI uh, can help them develop that, I guess, I guess nurture the curiosity, but do it in a safe space. Um, and I think that's the way that education should push for this, especially with the younger children. They ask great questions. Actually, they've proven four to seven-year-olds ask the best questions, right? I think a psychologist went through and did that study. It's uh, my children have proved that. They stump the chump all the time, the chump being me. I love that. Yeah, probably because they're not thinking about how they're coming across the same way someone older might. Right. And I guess that's my wife tells me that's one of my many things that is both good and bad about me is that I don't I don't have that fear. <laughs> no, I think you not have that fear because it can hold you back if you're not willing to put yourself out there and just be honest about what you do or don't know or understand. It's true. Um, but especially in in organizations with hierarchies of sorts, um, 
not being afraid to ask questions to whomever or however. Obviously, there's a filter of respect, but it can it can stir the pot a bit, which is why I'm a big fan of organizations being Stanley McChrystal calls a team of teams, right, which is essentially just a network. So most people understand that base level of your computer is connected to a bunch of other computers through a network. And whether you call it a computer that looks like a computer or it's a router that's essentially a computer with a very narrow function, you are still understand the idea that it's really just a collection of nodes. Sometimes nodes drop out, but that, that network still functions. You just lose. There's some constantly changing, in other words. So uh, questions are the key. Asking good questions is probably the single most important thing you can do coming into AI. Because if you ask good questions, you find out where its limits are, where it's helpful, where it's not, um, and you you improve the algorithm while you improve your understanding of the algorithm. Love it. All right. So one of my final, a couple more questions left. Um, looking out into the future, let's say your kids are now 46 and 48. <laughs> what do you think the future of AI looks like? What kind of impact do you think that this is going to have on all of our lives? Oh, I think it's going to be unrecognizable. Um, so I think, I truly think this is, it's going to be like the personal computer era is to today. Um, the pervasiveness We've already gotten to the point where we talk about Moore's law being able to essentially make computers smaller and smaller. Slows a little bit, but we'll find a new medium, right? I think quantum throws a completely different wrench into this that's not part of this topic, but I think that accelerates AI logarithmically. I think in 40 years, it becomes unrecognizable because the applications that we traditionally apply things to because of our experience over the last 30, 40 years, when the younger generation that doesn't have that that stigma comes of age and starts to really accelerate this, it's gonna be exciting. And I think that it is as much a deterrent as anything else. Um, what point do you consider a non-kinetic threat? It may, it may actually be kinetic AI, but when I say that, I mean nuclear deterrence versus AI deterrence, right? The ability to, to use things like that as as assurance that are a little less the world's going to end and a little more about you know not destroying everything and anything but being able to target specific sensitive areas so i think that uh i think it's going to permeate everything we do in life and inside the government and specifically in the department of defense i think it's uh it's going to be unrecognizable in 40 years yeah exciting uh, and hopefully i can i can enjoy a a beachside cottage somewhere in the world and by that point not have to worry about it yeah exactly <laughs> all right so i have one final question for you but before i ask it is there anything that we haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to touch on or any question that you wish i had asked you that maybe i didn't you know i would just say that uh, ai literacy i don't know if you're a big fan of memes but there's all kinds of memes when you look up ai memes and some of them are the old school Scooby-Doo where they have somebody with a hood on that was the, the ghost or the, the, the villain and they pull it off and it says, ah, who you actually really are. And then sometimes there's a hood on a hood. And at the end of the day, uh, AI is magic. We haven't reached that point. There are different levels of AI. When, when you talk to the magic, you start super intelligence where it essentially 
it starts to evolve faster than the human brain and in a way we can't necessarily understand or control which is a different level but when you pull back the current level of ai the narrow ai that does specific tasks not general tasks as well as humans the back of that is data and math and that, there's nothing scary about data and math no more scary than it already is for most people uh, and so to demystify a little bit of that fear uh, and also to understand the enabler you can't just ask for ai and expect things to solve right so i i touched on a concept of data driven so application centric i see is you know applications just like the earth right were the center of the universe for a while immutable they were the thing that, that was unchangeable that was the priority and we need to shift that to data being the priority because data is you need to be able to understand what it is and what it isn't contextualize it market secure it in in cases where you need security and safety and then understand who the identity that that of of the human or machine that is coming to use the data and whether or not they have access so i think it's very important to keep in mind that at the core of this is still the human problem of who are you and what is it you actually need and then what is the data and what's the sensitivity level of the data and what is it relevant to and that's that's a core behavioral human problem and the place to start with ai is just to understand what is my behavior what is important and how does data help me do my job and if you can start there you can start getting awake so i can't take opinions of what's sensitive and what isn't and tell a computer to block up and don't let anybody access that data i have to take those opinions that are in security classification guides that are in in the definitions of what class you know controlled unclassified information is what personal identifiable information is personal health information taking those and decomposing them to something that a computer can do security much more effectively than humans you need to get away from opinions and get to the actual schemas that you that that actually define that data and then the computer can do what it's really good at which is make it so that humans can't get to it with a little help from ai and smart coders and then the back side of that is always requirements uh, we we talk a lot about what is the requirement that i have we don't always talk about how the changing world right the actual world the landscape the materials the the cape the actual technologies all of these things change the you that changes right and i'm talking about the you that uses products and the you that produces the products as well as what the actual products in the changing environment are feeding back to you and if you can't macro balance all of that in a way that you can write better requirements and then find the right person which isn't always the one person that's trying to define it for everybody in a contract but the right person that can explain it to the humans that are going to have to do part of that system support so software coders need a different interpretation than a microelectronics builder that need a different interpretation than a rocket motor builder so you we need to acknowledge that sometimes the requirement exists but you have to fund it a second time to keep up with with the actual world and so i think that anchor point to the world and based in humanity is and having a discussion between humans and then going to requirements definition not take a thought put it on paper and start jamming it through the requirements process to get 
something out on the other side that you can figure out how to fund or whether it's a priority. I think you got to insert that humanities piece as the priority instead of policy and process. So I think I just went on a tangent there, but I think it's very important to step back and just realize why we do what we do and start with a rehumanizing of what are the actual discussions that need to happen before we go do something? What's the right thing to do? As Einstein's, he's a you know favorite quoter of mine. If I had one hour to save the world, I'd spend 69 or 59 seconds um, devising the right, or sorry, 59 minutes devising the right question and one minute answering it. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Big fan of memes over here too, by the way. <laughs> And <laughs> if you go on my LinkedIn, I've got I've got a ton of really entertaining memes that I've passed on these subjects. So you might be able to to get a few good ones for your pocket. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. I just requested you on LinkedIn. So I'll definitely get awesome. to check that out. <laughs> so my final question, this is just for fun, but if you were to write a book, what would it be about and why? Oh man. Would it be about? It would, at the moment, because of where, where I've been in, in life, would probably be something like um, children, the ultimate AI, map to AI. I think a very unique experience of being, interacting with children on a very, very frequent basis is that AI is supposedly a curious machine that you enable to learn to, to draw inferences and that's essentially what children do uh, but they have the innate ability to generate the right questions so they're both the answer you know the question and the answer to that problem in my opinion so exploring that deeply would would probably be be where i start right because i think it's that human centric and everyone can understand a child um maybe you don't can't explain why they do what they do, but you can totally understand that that people learn through experience and, and the world is simple. They have school influence, friends influence, parents influence. It's not nature. It's not nurture, right? You can philosophically debate all of it, but I think that would be the subject. Yeah, I love that. Well, I hope we see that out on the shelves one day. <laughs> yes. Maybe I can get uh, AI to help me write it. It'll be a much faster <laughs> process. There you go. Well <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim. It's been such a delight. I know our viewers are going to get so much wisdom out of this episode, and we will definitely be sharing it with our community once once it's up on our podcast. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I'm humbled looking at the list of, of contributors that you have had to, to this podcast that I was given the, given the opportunity to come on, and I would highly recommend anybody who wants to get a little bit more information about what I'm talking about and why I think it's such an important thing for a humanities-based approach to look at Igor Jablokov's interview. Uh, just a little spoiler, right? If you if you don't know who he is, his older sister's name is Alexa. Mm -hmm. So highly recommend going back and finding that that episode and, and watching that, listening to that. Uh, I, I heard him for just an hour and a half speaking and uh, life-changing. So wow. I'll leave you with that final piece. And thank you for having me. I truly, truly appreciate it. I will 
throw out any recommendations I can find, right? I'm only as good as the network I've managed to find and suck good information from. So uh, there's definitely much smarter and more authoritative people on these topics that I would be happy to, to reference you to. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. We'll see you at the next one. Thank you much. Timmy Beach on uh, LinkedIn. If anybody wants to find me, I have a pirate flag in my uh, title. And no surprise to anyone who, who knows me, or I think you might have gotten a feel for it here, Kirsten. And uh, feel free to find me on LinkedIn and connect and uh, ask any questions. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Timothy, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation, and I wanted to thank Kirsten again for guiding that conversation and getting us all the information we needed out of today's episode. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today.